Hi, welcome to Beyond the Paper Gown. I'm Dr. Mitzi Crockover. If you're a regular listener, then you know that my goal is to bring you the thought leaders in the areas that affect our health, whether it be healthcare, research, or policy. One of the exciting factors that's having a significant impact on our health is the growing area of femtech, or innovation in women's health. And today, I am thrilled to host two dynamic and insightful women, each of whom is deeply embedded in advancing women's health through supporting innovators and advocating for removing barriers to innovation. Joining us is Rachel braun Sherl, co-founder of Spark, which is a consultancy specializing in business development and strategy. Rachel's impressive client roster includes Johnson & Johnson, Allergan, Pfizer, Merck, Bayer, and many more. Beyond her consultancy role, she often speaks out on challenges and opportunities in the field. Rachel brings a unique perspective and calls herself a vaginapreneur, which is a term we'll explore shortly. Additionally, she co-hosts the Business of the V podcast. We also have with us Dr. Brittany Barreto, who holds a PhD in molecular and human genetics and is also a serial entrepreneur. Brittany's innovative spirit led her to create Faramore, the world's first DNA-based dating app. She's a prominent figure in the Femtech community, hosting the Femtech Focus podcast and contributing to Femtech Forbes. Brittany founded FemHealth Insights, which is a boutique consulting firm equipped with market research software dedicated to women's health innovation. As you can see, we are set for a vibrant and enlightening conversation that I believe will not only educate you, but certainly will also inspire. Good morning or good afternoon to you ladies. It's still my morning. <laughs> Hi, Mitzi. Hi. So, Rachel, I'm just going to start with you. What's a vagipreneur? <laughs> a vagipreneur is a person who is in the business of women's sexual and reproductive health. The, the name was created by this brilliant journalist, Abby Ellen, who was the first person we ever spoke to before our story uh, appeared in the New York Times. And she said, oh, I get it. Vaginas in business, you're a vagipreneur. And it's just become a shorthand <laughs> to describe, you know, the kinds of things I focus on, um, the parts of the one part of the body that I focus on, and the fact that I come at it from a, a very much a business perspective. Terrific. Thanks. And Brittany, I'll ask you, how does a DNA dating app work? <laughs> well, scientists have actually shown that people are attracted to one another through pheromones. So pheromones are hormones that affect somebody else. That's actually the definition of what a pheromone is. And we release pheromones through hair follicle pores, uh, typically in places like our underarms and uh, the tops of our heads. And so when we go on first dates, we're actually picking up signals from other people through their pheromones, which is changing our biochemistry. And people are actually attracted to one another when their immune system genes are very different. So you can think about it like you want an organ transplant from your sister, but you do not want to marry your sister, right? And so when you get an organ transplant, it's about similar immune system genes. When it's about physical chemistry and attraction, it's actually about opposite immune system genes. So that's like kind of the quick 411 on what is a DNA-based dating app. It's... it's uh, uh, tapping into the biology of attraction and putting that into the technical world. 
So if our listeners haven't figured out already, these are two very creative, smart, and innovative uh, women. And so uh, it doesn't, you know, uh, it shouldn't surprise anybody that they're also very outspoken um, in terms of being advocates for women's health. And I've really enjoyed getting to know you guys over the last couple of years. But, you know, in many societies, including ours, women's health issues are still considered taboo. And we in the United States still find resistance to talking about certain issues. Though I think things are changing because I just read that the Vagina Museum in London is opening up again. So <laughs> there is some hope. But how can we all collectively work towards normalizing that conversation? Rachel, I'll let you get started. There's so many factors, but like the way we think about women's health is a good model for how we think about moving the category along. It really is about the intersection of physical conditions, emotional situations, hormonal, social, behavioral, contextual, aging, um, and we're really starting to talk much more about how complex so many of these issues are that women face. They either face them uniquely because they have the, they were born with the organs, they face them differently because men and women respond differently, or they face them primarily in terms of they affect women a lot more than men. And when we look at the progress that we've made, it really is a combination of all those factors. We have lots of entrepreneurs who are building companies, who invest in companies, Um, There are a lot more women who have excess capital to invest. We have creative sources of capital. We have celebrities aging, which makes a big difference when Oprah talks about menopause versus, you know, Joan at the corner talking about menopause. Uh, We have organizations who now have part of their mandate investing in and supporting female entrepreneurs. And we have the media who's now come along with the conversation Uh, Everyone has noted that the New York Times has done quite a number of articles on menopause. And the last piece, and this has been discovered 25 years ago for fertility and reproduction and only more recently with menopause, we know that if we're not dealing with women's health conditions, situations, experiences, we are at risk of losing a lot of talent. So when Apple and Google came out with fertility and reproductive and egg freezing benefits, you know, is it because it was nice to do? Yes, but did it also make sense from a business perspective? Yes, people left um, le- uh, less frequently, we reduced turnover, we increased productivity, and we're seeing the exact same thing in menopause right now because at any one point, 20% of the workforce is in menopause. So it's a long answer, but it is so many factors coming together at the same time. You know, I I joke, I have a a talk that I give that's called In a Hot Flash, Women's Health and Overnight Sensation Centuries in the Making. And these factors have come together (laughs) at this moment or the last two years of moments because of all these factors coming together and coalescing at the same time. You know, I really resonate with that. I've been doing women's health or or practicing women's health for for a very long time. And I was going back through some of my... um, uh, papers and things like that. A lot of the topics that we are talking about now, <clears throat> we were talking about back then, but we didn't have this confluence of kind of the perfect storm of women in leadership, women in science, more women in clinical. 
um, and, and business as well as the technology. So it's, it, it's all about the timing. And so I'm so glad to, you know, to be seeing that. And just to underline what you were just talking about um, with respect to menopause, Mayo Clinic study um, came out that showed that businesses lose an estimated $1 billion in lost work time per year and $26.6 billion annually when medical expenses are added due to menopause and perimenopausal symptoms that are experienced by their workers in the workplace. So, um, you know, that should give us pause. Having numbers from the Mayo Clinic or having numbers from, you know, the Menopause Foundation, that speaks volumes. And one of the other factors that is the result of all these, this confluence is a vocabulary. You can't have a conversation unless you have the words to speak about it. And whether that's body parts, whether it's human conditions, whether it's emotional experiences, you need the vocabulary, which also has been being built and developed and used, most importantly, alongside all the other changes. Brittany, what comes to my mind is that recently you were at a large conference and saw a need and dealt with that in a very public way so that you did a service and you also then called attention to the issue. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a conference called Health, spelt H-L-T-H, and it's to date like the largest health tech conference in the world. And I attended it last year and it was on the Las Vegas Strip. And several women approached me knowing who I am and what I do saying, I just got my period and I have to leave because there's no menstrual products in the bathroom. There wasn't even coin operated ones. And so not only did these women have to interrupt their day, not attend a meeting, not attend a talk, but they couldn't just even go down the hallway. They had to walk. And I looked it up 0.7 miles to the closest pharmacy to get menstrual products for themselves. And, you know, these are women who may have only needed two tampons or a pad to get them through the day. Maybe they had some in their hotel room. Room, but instead, we're asking them to spend $20 on a box of 20 tampons that then they have to keep in their purse or throw away, right? Because who? what are you carrying at the conference? And just seemed to be so logistically nonsensical and to something that, you know, we're providing water and toilet paper. We should probably provide menstrual products. And looking at that being 10,000 people there, let's assume 40% of the attendees were female. Let's assume even 10% of that 4,000 and women were actively menstruating. That's 400 menstruators, right? 400 menstruators that regardless of breakthrough bleeding, let's just say on, on their period, they knew it, they ran out of product or forgot it in the hotel, had to do something about it. And so, yeah, I bought, I purchased a thousand uh, menstrual products, brought it to the conference, put them in little baskets in the restrooms, put up little signs that said, when all you think about is women's health, you see opportunity where others don't. Had a little QR code for my podcast and my consulting firm. And it was the best $120 I've ever spent because we've gotten a ton of business out of it. And next year, hopefully we'll have a whole Femtech booth with lots of products available for everybody, not just in the women's health bathroom. People forget that menstruators are part of the workforce. Menstruators are part of your attendees at your conference. And, you know, it's kind of fun. Women's health, it, it is a lot of low-hanging fruit, which makes it a great business opportunity right now. Sure. You know, it's interesting. My daughter um, attended a lot of hackathons when she was in high school. And the first time um, I went to one in the in the girls' bathroom was some products. And I think it might have been sponsored by Aunt Flo. And it was like, 
I'd never seen that before. I never really thought about it because we're so used to trying to find that quarter if you need it or or stuffing, you know, toilet paper or whatever it is. I just want to kind of expand that a little bit just to make the point that not only, again, do we maybe not think about that, it's expensive and there's even taxes on it in certain municipalities. So we call it they call it a luxury tax. And so what we know, for example, is that there are girls that don't go to school in the United States because they can't afford period products and they don't go to school. So, you know, we think about this as kind of a um, a minor issue, but it's really not. And for all the reasons that you stated um, in terms of, again, being inconvenient and, and, and all of that, um, but even more than that, expensive and having to miss opportunities, you know, all the way to just not even being able to to go and do what you need to do to, to graduate uh, high school. So I'll get off my uh, my soapbox, but I wanted to make that point. <laughs> but it speaks to the rise of women's health, right? We're finally acknowledging that there are menstruators at school, in the workplace, at your conference, right? And so we're also not only admitting to there being menstruators, but the menstruators are standing up saying, I deserve service. I deserve to be accommodated. This is a biological process that is not in, not weird, not taboo, shouldn't even be inconvenient. This should be a natural human process that you should acknowledge and respect. And so speaking to kind of your first question, Mitzi, about this rise of women's health, we're finally starting to call things what they are. It's your vagina. This is your vulva, right? There's a cervix. We're starting to get rid of, you know, um, myths like breaking your hymen, right? We're starting to actually talk about the facts, the biology, and um, we're learning about the biology of menstruation, right? We're learning about the windows of fertility. And the more that we learn about these things, we're more able to talk about it, as Rachel was mentioning, right? We can't raise awareness for something if we don't even know the words that we're supposed to use for it. And the thing that excites me the most of what we see in our research is that there's a rise of women in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and medicine. And the more women we have in STEM, we're seeing the more solutions coming out specifically for women's health. And so it's a really exciting time. Gen Z gives me a lot of hope. They're just questioning every paradigm that's ever been built. And um, we're, we're truly starting to make women's health mainstream. So we were talking earlier about the fact that we have more women in life sciences and research and business and investment um, and um, clinical practice, obviously can always use more, but the burden, the responsibility is on women. Where are the men in all this? What do you think, Rachel? We can't do it without the men. It affects everybody. And I'll just go back to, uh, to Brittany's example with walking 0.7 miles to the bathroom. If you are working with a woman who has to walk 1.4 miles to go to the bathroom and she was meeting with you, that affects your productivity. So it has a lot of implications, really practical day-to-day implications in the workplace. Women make 80% of the healthcare decisions and in their family, they're the chief medical officers often of their family if there is a woman in the family. So her understanding, her knowledge, her ability to put together pieces of information affects everybody. This should not be a women's health issue. Healthier women lead to healthier, more productive societies. So we have a lot of advocates and men supporting. It should not be an us versus them. We must do this together to make the change and to build the companies that we want to see that can change the world. Here, here. Brittany, do you have anything to add? 
the tagline of our podcast is women's health is everyone's health. You know, we are 51% of the population and responsible for the other 49, uh, even if that's just birthing them. And so um, when you improve a woman's health, you truly improve <laughs> the health of her partners, her children's, her families, her community, her business. Um, and unfortunately, we haven't seen uh, capitalism care too much about women's health. But now that we're more than 50% <laughs> of the pop, uh, workforce, our health does matter to your bottom line. Going back to your point, Rachel, in terms of the challenging parts of, uh, of sex and, um, and issues, the Dobbs decision focused attention on women's reproductive rights, and that was the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It also obviously highlighted how politics and policies can impact on our health. So talk a little bit about your view on the key takeaways from this decision and others like it and its impact on women's health. Well, after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, we saw a deep self-reflection, I think, by individuals, governments, and companies to ask themselves, where do I stand on this issue? We've had companies ask themselves, where do they stand on it? We've had investors ask themselves, where do they stand on it? Are they going to put money into reproductive health? We've seen what we call row rounds, which is startups and venture funds having uh, a very significant uptick in the amount of funding they were able to raise because investors were self-reflecting on themselves and where they stood on the issue. And, you know, the ones that said, I want to put my money where my heart is, and they invested in these reproductive health companies. Something I'm really excited about is I actually just got back from the national contraception meeting last week. Uh, ironically, it took place in Texas where uh, abortion is illegal. Um, they saw a significant increase in male interest in birth control. So I actually called my mother um, yesterday and was telling her about the conference. And, and I was telling her, oh, mom, and there's like, oh, there's a three, three drugs in phase one clinical trials right now for a male contraception, a male birth control. And she said, oh, well, it's too bad that men won't take it. You know, she's like, men would never do it. They won't even get vasectomies. And I said, ma, that's your generation. I said, you know, and she, what is she? She's almost 60, right? And so for her, she had this paradigm that men would refuse to take birth control. And I said, Ma, the men in my, the males, if I if I am more correct, the males in my generation and younger are absolutely open to taking on the responsibility of reproductive rights. And they want to participate in that. And she was like, are you serious? That's incredible. That's huge, right? And so <laughs> I, I wouldn't, and that was a yeah. specifically in the research they showed, it was they redid the surveys after Roe v. Wade was overturned. And that's when the jump took place, right? And so although it was like a horrible, in my opinion, horrible thing that happened to women's rights, I also think it kind of made us dust off some, you know, cobwebs and say, damn, we need to make some decisions. We need to step up and do something about this, whether that be policies in your company, investment decisions, or even personal choices about the drugs that you or your partner are taking. And, you know, I'm cheering, uh, if we could be cheering uh, during a <laughs> webinar, you know, I agree wholeheartedly uh, with everything Britt says. Um, I'll take it in a slightly different direction. You know, the expression necessity is the mother of invention. We've mm. luckily seen more innovative solutions. COVID trained us just in time to understand telehealth, which has made uh, medication abortion um, a much bigger option. One of the things that's really challenging for companies is this is a this is an issue that is never easy. There's never consensus. 
Um, it makes lots of people uncomfortable. And I was on a panel um, with a person who was in the benefits area. And I heard the most fascinating thing that I want to share because I hadn't heard it before or since. If you want to enable employees to travel across state lines for miscarriage management for abortion, why should they have to go to their boss, to their HR department and say, raise their hand and say, I'm going to terminate a pregnancy. So what this company has decided to do is we now pay for people to cross state lines to get to the best care they can get for whatever it is that ails them. So if you need a double hip replacement and you're in a state um, that's next door to where the greatest orthopedic surgeon on the planet is, they are paying for you to go there. So, and that's a really important concept that we don't want to make women's health or my personal health, I certainly don't, I wanna be the one who gets to share what people know about my health. And so putting the onus on women to say, you know, here I am, here I am, I'm doing this thing, which you may or may not approve of, they are, you can create policies that make it so everybody can get the best health that they need. Well, moving on to the other end of the spectrum, and we talked a little bit about menopause, um, but specifically menopause in the workplace, and we, again, we talked about the bottom line. Um, what are you seeing in terms of actual programs, initiatives that you think are not just superficial, but really meaningful. And uh, Rachel, you're nodding your head, so I'll let you start. Okay, so, uh, and I'm, uh, it's more personal for me than Britt, given uh, <laughs> our respective ages. Uh, so we're seeing that one of the biggest things we hear over and over again with the menopausal community is that they feel so alone. They don't expect it. You know, you're trained as a physician. You might not have been expecting it. There are dozens and dozens of symptoms. You know, high flashes might get center stage, but there are many, many others that are quite problematic, like brain fog, like increased anxiety, like the impact on sleep, some of which is caused by hot flashes, but not all, um, increased anxiety and depression, lethargy. So these are huge issues, every single one of which affects productivity in a workplace. So we are seeing many startups going in and educating, you know, providing the language, helping them understand the signs, helping them do what they can to manage any of the symptoms, giving them access to collect data. There are a lot of amazing devices in menopause that are collecting data that'll help you make more informed decisions. So the first piece is education and awareness. And the second, we're not quite there yet, but we're making a lot of progress, is products and services that offer solutions or relief of some of these symptoms that are, are so intrusive. Brittany, how about yourself? Well, there was a survey in 2022 that said four out of every 10 women, so 40% of women have experienced menopausal symptoms that interfere directly with their work performance or productivity on a weekly basis. So 40% weekly basis, symptoms are interfering with their work. And 17, so 17% have quit their job or considered quitting due to menopausal symptoms. Uh, this is actually a recent revelation for me. Um, I, you know, obviously this is all I eat, breathe, sleep, roll around in is women's health. And I have um, <laughs> been hearing more and more and more about women in dropping out of the workforce because of their menopausal symptoms. As a female founder, as a female scientist, as a feminist in general, 
general, I've been fighting the DEI fight. We need women at the table. We need women on boards. We need women leadership. And I can't help but think, have we missed a major talking point, or by talking, I mean, hopefully, actionable point, that menopause may actually be part of the leaky pipeline that people have been saying. I think there's been a giant gaping leak in our pipe, which is even if women did make it to leadership, their brain fog or fatigue or hot sweats at night that leads them to not be well rested and they're, they're um, just pure like dissociation from their body may actually be causing one of the biggest fit, uh, pitfalls in having females in leadership. We've worked so hard to get females in leadership. How do we keep them there and keep them there in a healthy way? And I think that is so important because of the way we talked earlier about keeping um, young childbearing women in the workplace by offering benefits that enable them to build families in the way that they want, how they want, when they want. We are now seeing the response to that for the first time, companies offering menopause support. And that takes many different forms. It could be a telehealth visit with a doctor. It could be education. Um, it could be access to products. But we are now seeing, why would we want, okay, they're the oldest, I can say maybe the wisest also. Why would we want to lose people who will be but entering the C-suite? But they're not that old. I mean, the <laughs> average but talking, when you can, starts yeah. in 40 years old right. starts so, having... And we have executives that are in their 70s. And so uh, male executives for the most part. So I think that's another piece of it. It's, it's not just a disease of old people. It's not even a disease. Let's put it that way. It's not a disease, but there is ageism. You know, it, I, never, I would never want to be in a room where I would want to raise my hand and say, excuse me, my brain synapses aren't connecting right now. Can we take a 20 minute break while I have a, an unbearable hot flash and go to the ladies room? That's not what the goal is. But could we have a hot flash standing in front of a room, which I have and many, many people I know have, and say, excuse me, I need to step out for five minutes. Sure. That's different. We're not, you know, I think one of the things we have to be clear about is I don't think most women want to be sharing their personal details of their health in the workplace. What I think they want is an ability to work with them in the context you know, of the workplace. And again, I'm a broken record because I go back to the economic argument. We'll assume that people who are entering menopause have more work experience than people who are 20 years younger. Why would we wanna lose the people who are elevating, who are making decisions, who are giving us a seat at the table. Our listeners out here are probably saying, okay, that's great, but I don't want to be the person that brings this issue up. So how would you suggest that they could successfully advocate and what are they advocating specifically for? I would say a workplace that supports women in general, right? So I think work has been, it's only recently that women have had a, a major stake holder place in the workplace, right? This is a recent thing uh, in, the, in the long generations of working. But to answer your question and like, instead of, uh, you know, your listeners going to HR and being like, you need to rethink how workplaces are philosophically, here's actual something they can do. They can go to their HR department and say, hey, 
Can you bring in a speaker to educate the workplace about ovulation in the office or menstruation or menopause in the office? HR departments bring in DEI speakers all the time. Put it under that budget. Put in a women's health talk, right? And then you as the employee don't have to bear that burden of educating your bro or male leadership about what's going on in your body. You can bring in an external person like Rachel or myself or, uh, you know, if you want to list, I'm sure we have a list of experts. I would love to come in and talk to your business about this. We'll do the heavy lifting for you. In the meantime, I would say that you can also advocate for little signs that the company is pro-women. So you can advocate for going to HR and saying, hey, can we get free menstrual products in the bathroom? So I think it's about, for me, as of right now, it's an H, it's a talk about with leadership and HRs about, you know, putting it under DEI is typically what I find to be most successful. And by the way, going back to men and women, and if you're experiencing hot flashes from your prostate cancer treatment, we care about that also. Mm, Very good point. The other piece that I would mention is COVID, as horrible as it was, had a few silver linings. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them was we understood the complexity and the full range of people's lives. And I could say as someone who has been working since the day my children were born, 25 years ago, I would never say, I have to go and leave for my daughter's squash match. But now a kid is running behind you, a baby is crying, the dog jumps on you, someone poops on the desk. It became a reality when everybody's um, on Zoom that people had to understand a broader view of someone's life. The same thing when schools were closed and we saw literally and still have a crisis in childcare. You know, I don't know anybody, male or female anymore, who has a nine to five job. That, you know, that is like a vacation compared to how most people are asked to work. Um, Overtime becomes just something that's expected. So we need to be supporting our workforce in a way that doesn't require, you know, all the blocks to be put together and the puzzle to be fitting together perfectly. This isn't new. People have been struggling with childcare and figuring out how to take care of their children and work. This is gonna be a challenge forever because you cannot be in two places at the same time. Uh, So I think really, we're seeing when we talk about these cataclysmic change changes some of them we are catalyzing and some of them we need to be responding to you know i entered investment in women's health because the light bulb went off for me when i was being consulted for my clinical expertise by these women who could not find solutions for their medical issues in the marketplace or in the healthcare system. And so for me, I literally wanted to be invested to support these innovations and these innovators. So talk to me a little bit about what you see as the way that these innovations can play a pivotal role in women's health. Brittany, what do you say? Sometimes I think innovation can be seen as uh, an improvement on solutions. And so often I find that in women's health, it's the first ever, right? Like we're making the first ever diagnostic for endometriosis, which affects one in 10 women. Not a better test, not a faster test, not a more specific one, a first ever, right? Or if we are innovating on something that exists, if we're innovating on something that's been around for 300 years, right? Like it's it was invented 300 years 
years ago and we really haven't touched the product design of it. And so some of the things that I'm really excited about are, um, I'll give you an example of one of those like dramatic improvements, the 300 year timeline one. Um, to get an IUD in place into the uterus, you have to bypass the cervix. I like to think of the uterus as like a balloon and the cervix is the knot on the bottom of the balloon holding, holding the air in, right? Now that's not actually how the cervix works, but just go with me here in terms of the analogy. You have to bypass that knot <laughs> and it's actually very painful to do so. It's actually very painful to do so, but most of that pain actually does not come from the crossing of the cervix. The pain comes from the stabilization of the cervix. And what I mean by that is the holding it steady. And currently the way that gynecologists hold your cervix steady in order to put an IUD into your uterus or do things like implant an embryo into your uterus if you're doing fertility you know, treatments or get an, um, a uterine biopsy if you're getting a test done, any of those things that need to cross that cervix, cross that knot, what they're currently using is a thing called a uh, tenaculum. A tenaculum is like these little pincher things and it's actually the same tool that they use to take a bullet out of a hole right? I think we've all seen enough action movies, like they're, they're in the war zone or whatever, and they need to take the bullet out. And there's this, these like kind of um, metal clampy looking things that are going in there and they're taking the bullet out. That is what they are using to clamp down onto the cervix. And that's what they're using to stabilize it. Okay. For those who can't see me, I'm quote unquoting it, stabilizing it, right? The most of the pain is coming from that pinch. There is now a new medical device by the company called Aspivix, and Aspivix created a suction-based device that essentially it's like a little smiley face, a little half circle, and it goes to the bottom of the cervix and it you pull on the bottom and it goes and it sucks and it sucks a little bit of the cervix skin into this little med device and that's what's actually holding it. And in their clinical trials, they showed a 70% decrease in pain. Now, what gets me just really riled up is that pain is considered normal in women's health. If your symptom is pain, it's not considered a symptom because pain is just part of the female experience, supposedly. And so what they are innovating on is not that the tenaculum isn't good at stabilizing the cervix, but it is incredibly painful. And when you're trying to get women to do things like be diagnosed for disease or have an IUD placed, you would like it to not be a traumatic injury. And so I'm really excited about innovations like Spivix, which are dramatically decreasing the pain of that experience so that hopefully we can dramatically increase the conversion of, of female patients saying, okay, yeah, I'll have an IUD placed. None of my friends said it was that bad. And we're talking about Roe v. Wade. We're living in a world where 21 states abortion is illegal. When you have a, a procedure that could potentially guarantee your you know, contraception through not having to take a pill every day through an IUD, you want that, that procedure to be um, attractive. You want that to be something that women say, yeah, I'll, I'll participate in this. And so those are the types of things I am excited about. And, you know, femtech is so often the lowest hanging fruit, literally the lowest hanging fruit. We're, we're, the innovation is we're no longer using a bullet remover to clamp on your internal organs. One last example as to how bad this is. <laughs> Um, I saw a Spivix at a conference and I did a demo, uh, follow me on TikTok to see the demo, Dr. Brittany Barreto. And I did a demo, they had a little cervix and the little, little suction cup thing and I'm doing it. And I asked the founder, I said, oh, do you have a tenaculum on you? Let me show them what that one looks like. And she said, oh, it's on the TSA's band list. I'm not allowed to fly with it. 
I said, well, dear God, if that's not the epitome of women's health, that you you were not allowed to fly with the medical device because you <laughs> might actually kill someone on the plane with it. It's that dangerous. That I mean, if you're not allowed to bring it on TSA, we probably shouldn't be clamping your organs with it. So I'll end with that. Uh, I'm really excited about what is becoming sort of a deafening roar um, around women's health. And, you know, even 12 months ago, we were hearing conversations where VCs would say, oh, I looked at a menopause company, I'm good, I'm covered, which if you know about menopause or you know about women's health is a very narrow, relatively uneducated view of the implications uh, and the impact of menopause. So I like that there are companies where I spend my time is as the connective tissue between venture-backed startups and larger companies, whether they're sources of capital, whether they're distribution partners, whether they're access points, um, whether they're mouthpieces and, and you, and you, uh, they're the wind beneath your wings, so to speak. I'm really excited that there are more people who are interested in this. It's been very clear. One of the things that concerns me, which wasn't part of your question, but I'll just throw that in anyway, is we have lots of effort in patches and we still have big gaps on the playing field um, where no one is inserting their leadership. So we're going to see a lot of consolidation, a lot of collaboration in areas where, you know, quite frankly, there might be more companies than we need. Uh, and we still have to really work at what are these huge gaps like endometriosis, like PCOS, diseases that take seven to 10 years to diagnose that often come, um, are not, e a person is not even aware that there's anything wrong until they start getting, trying to get pregnant. And then they've potentially had a seven to 10 year impact on their fertility window. So I want to make sure we're coming up with solutions for the big, big, big stuff because there's still a lot of big stuff. And to do that, what we're learning is you have to break down the problems into pieces. There's no woman's health condition where there's, you know, how many times do you hear in this space, we need the female Viagra. The female sexual response system does not work that way. So there is no one hit wonder for women's sexual response or desire, or satisfaction or orgasm. So we really have to be breaking down an understanding of women's health and figuring out places where we can make a difference in a very complex process. And to that, and I know that, you know, we, you and I and Brittany talked about this, and that is different from the Viagra, where my kids knew what ED was before they knew what a vagina was because they saw it on TV. At 5 p.m. on Channel CBS um, during the Super Bowl. Absolutely. You know, there are companies that aren't even in the sexual health space, but certainly including it those that can't even get their products advertised. Talk a little bit about that. How much time do you have? Uh, 30 seconds you can <laughs> this is this is an old story as long as I've been in the space which is over 15 years at this point there have been limitations on channels um, media channels where women's health businesses can get their ads and big things like now meta but they were doing it when they were still Facebook some TikTok some every every website every cable station every network where you are approaching them, when I was running my first business in the space, we went to 100 media outlets, and that was radio, website, TV, cable, and network. 95 said no. And what was your so, product? 
at, at that point, it was a product that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. So if you can't get your product out there to educate people, how, to Britt's point, do you actually know about a solution? So we do still face, despite huge efforts and huge progress, big headwinds because someone, some algorithm, some company decides that breastfeeding is too sexual in nature. You know, my favorite story ever in this space is um, a company called Pulse that I've had the pleasure of working with. They um, have a device and consumable for lubrication and massage oil for intimate wellness. And their ad got rejected because vaginal dryness was considered um, too sexual in nature. So, you know, I always put it out to people, name a hundred things that sound sexual or sexually appealing or sexually motivating. I don't think vaginal dryness would make even the longest list. So there's education sure. that is sometimes being stymied by the actual places where we want to put the education. It goes back, I think, to what you had said earlier. We really need to be upstream, talking to kids about body part language and making the body, you know, neutral <laughs> as opposed to... Uh, Normal, safe, something we talk exactly. about, something we're comfortable with, exactly. not something that if I never hear the ta word taboo again for the rest of my life... Um, you know, that would be great. Absolutely. And Brittany, talk a little bit, because I don't think that, you know, the, I know I didn't until I got involved, the process of getting a product developed and to market, especially if it's a medical device or needs some kind of regulatory approval. Well, we have a lot of... The short um, version. Yes, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, well, essentially, we have a lot of um, struggles in creating really fantastic diagnostics and medical devices because of the lack of history of work being done. So our backdrop to scientific discovery has been based on a male paradigm. And so we have to actually rewrite the books in terms of, you know, sometimes I wonder what basic scientific things have I learned about that are literally based on a male that we've never actually said a female cell or a female animal model. Um, and then you jump into human clinical trials and you have issues like, well, uh, women were not allowed to participate in clinical trials until 1993. And that was just the permission to participate, not even the requirement to participate was the it was just the permission to um, it wasn't until 2016, 2016, y'all, that um, we actually had a bill passed that said you have to consider sex in your data. So before that, if you even included females in your clinical trial, you are allowed to summarize that data with the male participant data and say, here's how it's working. Well, here's an example as to why that is terrible science. Well, the drug called Ambien, Ambien is a drug for helping you sleep. The female metabolism metabolizes it dramatically slower than males do. And so for 20 years, women were getting into car accidents in the mornings because they were still high on Ambien. They were still half asleep. And so it was the first and only drug to be removed from the market and then reapproved with sex-specific dosages. I cannot imagine how many women out there are being overdosed because the dosage is based on a male's body type, right? And so when you actually require clinical trials to say, well, here's the results for the male participants and here's the results for the female participants, now we can actually start to say, huh, this drug does work in both, but actually needs to be higher in females. Or get this, what if we considered her menstrual cycle? So, you know, we're technically able to give women a 28-day hormone regimen for her birth control pill 
Why are we not doing that for her Prozac? Why are we not doing that for her Crohn's disease medication, her Parkinson's disease medication? We have so many women uh, patient advocacy groups now coming out saying, we know our symptoms are worth when worse when we menstruate. And we want pharma to kind of consider that. Can you please figure out why my symptoms are worse? Do I need a higher dosage of my drug when I'm menstruating? What about if I'm postmenopause? Does it change how my metabolism works with these pharmaceutical drugs? Do we need to consider that? The, the, it is required for female participants in clinical trials to be on birth control. To date, you do not have drugs that have been approved that have been on a woman not on hormones. Every woman in clinical trials, in order to prevent her from getting pregnant during the trial, she has to be on birth control. And so um, this, I've, I've even lost track of what your original question was. Oh, the track, how do you get the medical device to product to market? <laughs> essentially, essentially, the first or thing we products, need to yeah. do is ask how sex and gender is being considered throughout that product development, through the safety protocols, through the evaluations of its efficacy, i.e. how well it works. Um, and then don't even get me started on actually getting it reimbursed by insurance or getting it approved by the FDA. And what, what I think the conversation really demonstrates is some of the just basic fundamental things are wrong. You know, the average drug was determined and dosed on a 160 pound white man. 40% of America is overweight or obese. So we're doing, a, we're making a lot of mistakes because our clinical study population is not reflecting our population in terms of, you know, how people show up and, you know, what, what they bring with them, what, what is their genetic history? What is their familial history? So again, in women's health, I mean, if there's one theme, you know, it's complicated, but making a little bit of progress in any of these things has a huge implication for you name it. You know, I, I just wanted to add one more thing about the other silver lining of COVID you know, we had conversations about the impact of vaccines on menstrual cycles because millions of people were getting vaccines at the same time and they were seeing changes. That wasn't studied, but that mistake or whatever you want to call it gave rise to a, a conversation and awareness that hadn't existed before. Let's talk about the consumer itself because we all had a conversation about the fact that women's health can also be a place where um, women can be exploited. And so, Brittany, talk a little bit about how consumers um, can really evaluate some of the uh, products that we're seeing in services. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, a lot of marketing has been going into women's health to try to tell us to have our vaginas smell like flowers. And we've lost track of what <laughs> our vaginas are really supposed to smell like. Um, and unfortunately, I think that uh, these types of marketing things have played on societal expectations of women that are outside of our natural biology. And so one thing to do is to, you know, you can listen to podcasts like this one or Femtech Focus or business of the V if you're if you're inclined to kind of listen while you do the dishes or take the dog for a walk and learn about products and learn about your own biology and your the bacteria in your vulva and what it's actually supposed to smell like and start to question what products am I using and why am I using them 
Another way to do research is simply by going on the company's website and asking if they have research behind the products that they are doing. If you do not have the time or desire to do so, and I can totally appreciate as a consumer myself, I don't have necessarily always have the time or desire to do my own research, you can go to marketplaces that have already done the research for you. So actually just this morning, had a call with the founder of a company called Unfabled, U-N-F-A-B-L, ED, Unfabled, and they actually do the research for you. And it's a marketplace e-commerce website that has all these women's health brands and companies that they've already did the research. They, they did it for you to make sure that this was, you know, good for your health, uh, based from a good company that actually cares about your, you know, health and not just how your vagina smells. Rachel, what are your thoughts? It is very hard for the average consumer to understand how to read or interpret clinical studies, uh, but it is to a certain extent, you know, caveat emptor, let the buyer beware, your responsibility to find a way to get the information. So just as we know, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. And just because someone has doctor in front of their name, with all due respect to two doctors on the phone who I have a tremendous respect for, doesn't mean they've looked at the science. So you really have to be an advocate. You have to read the science or figure out how to help someone understand the science. I mean, we're used to these claims from, uh, you know, from skincare and hair care. And is it actually saying improves X by 10% or does it say in a trial, 90% of women reported X. That's what's mm. called a marketing study, which just means, which doesn't mean it's not valid but it doesn't also mean, it doesn't necessarily mean it's scientific. So like we don't have enough to do, there's, there's one more thing, but to me, before you're putting something in your body that has the, or on your body that has the ability to have, you know, implications for a lot of systems and, and quality of life, you need to get educated. So as we're wrapping up, my questions are, what excites you about the next five years with respect to women's health? How about yourself, Brittany? I am excited to see red liquid in menstruation commercials, uh, which essentially is, for in bigger terms, a normalization of women's health in media. That's what I'm really excited about. Um, it's, it's almost kind you don't of think like the blue is 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 normal. Uh, I mean, if you're having Maybe if you're a, a Smurf, I don't know. Blue <laughs> liquid coming out of your vagina, I recommend you see a doctor. Um, <laughs> there, I'm, I'm really excited to see the normalization <laughs> of women's health and media. I'm excited for uh, people to ha- say these words like vagina or vulva, not only correctly, you know, I'm wearing uterus earrings for those who can't see. These are female reproductive organs. I have ovaries, fallopian tube, uterus, cervix, vagina, and people will literally say like, oh, you have vaginas on your earrings. And I'm like, oh, here's a teaching moment. That's the vagina, right? Like there's so many other words. So just (laughs) learning about the basic anatomy of the female um, reproductive tract and our bodies and how things are supposed to work, because the more we learn and normalize it, the less stigmatized or unique we'll feel. So I think like there's women who are so hard on themselves for quote unquote, not being able to breastfeed. And yet if they knew the actual statistics of breastfeeding success, they would say, oh, wow, I'm actually in the norm or miscarriage. You know, there's this, this thing that's like, don't tell anyone you're pregnant till the second trimester. And it's like, well, who's on whose behalf are we telling these women not to talk about that? I would love for them to tell me. And then therefore, if they did lose the pregnancy, I could support them in that, right? 
right? But we continue to tell women to keep their health to themselves, keep their bodies to themselves, and only tell us when it's going great. Um, and so I think that uh, I'm really excited for the normalization of the regular female health experience. And I'm excited to see some big exits and some big money coming from women's health, you know? And by exits, I mean acquisitions where bigger companies buy other companies or even IPOs. The more big successes we'll get, the less questions we'll get about this being a big enough market to make money in. And uh, I'm also really excited because the people who are going to make the money I know where their their next round of funding is going to go. It's going to go back into women's health. They knew it was a good investment decision. They they made their money from it, and I'm excited for them to further engage in, in funding our industry. Great. Rachel? I'm excited for the changes to actually really change the conversation so that more money goes in. I'm excited for the day when um, a women's health unicorn isn't a unicorn, isn't so unusual when it just becomes um, par for the course. I'm excited for when you no longer see all male panels, which they call mantles, which I think is very funny, talking about uh, women's health. I'm excited to see collaboration between small companies and large companies. I'm excited to see consolidation. And I'm excited to sort of wake up one day and have this not be so much work to even get this on the table. You know, a lot of the hard work has been done by lots of people. And I also want to make sure that we're celebrating the wins. And it just strikes me when Brittany was talking about, you know, actually showing the color of menstrual fluid, that did we spend enough time talking about the fact that Wimbledon changed the all-white dress code, partially in response to the fact that women... It's not the most comfortable thing to wear white, certainly not on TV, certainly while you're playing tennis, when you're menstruating. I mean, that in the world of women's health, that's a sea change, <laughs> you know? That's unbelievable. And we really have to celebrate so that we can keep up our energy because this is a long haul. Absolutely. And what would you say to the listeners who want to get involved or want to make a difference? Rachel, you're smiling, so I'll let you um, go The first. answer is so different now than it was before. There are podcasts, there are communities um, like Femtech Focus, like Femtech Insider, like Women of Wearables. There's a lot of information. So I'm sure, and I know this, Britt and I have talked about this, we get calls every week, I'm interested in women's health. That's a hard conversation to have because that is so broad and so big. So really start using the resources that are available and the information that's available and the case studies that are available to figure out what your focus is. You can't just do women's health. There's no such thing. There's, there's too many pieces of it. So I encourage people who are interested in the space, find people you, like in any other business, find people you admire, see if you can talk to them, read about interesting companies, read about big failures. Talk to people who have been successful in other spaces and find out what it would take, you know, from a, a P&L standpoint to be successful. There's so many sources of education now than when I started. It was like, you know, you felt a little bit years ago like you were shouting into the void. Now you're shouting and a lot of people are shouting back. And I mean that <laughs> in, a, in a productive way. There's a lot sure. of conversation. There are thousands and thousands, if not millions of people who are talking about it, building companies, raising money, investing money. Great. How about you, Brittany? 
building on that, because that was my first, first suggestion, get involved, educate through podcasts, newsletters, articles, you know, LinkedIn posts, etc. But also start to participate. There are crowdfunding platforms like WeFunder or Kickstarter that you can put $100 in. Start to put your money into the products that you want to see come to market. Um, and so that one, you don't have to be a very rich person to put your money where your desire is in terms of products coming to market. Um, and then also is just talk about women's health, normalize the conversation. And I'm not just talking about, but yes, in addition to your girlfriends, uh, your female family members, your female coworkers, but men as well. Mitzi, I don't know that your gender or sex demographics of your listeners, but if they're anything like my show, it, mine is 96% female listeners, right? And I'm talking about women's health innovation. It's not just for women, but that's just my listener base. We need to include men in this conversation. And the more that I think that we can educate men on it, they have questions. They have a lot of questions. And if you could be someone that they know they can ask answer questions to, you're actually empowering the women in their workforce and their jobs and their other circles um, because they may not feel comfortable to ask them. You know, it's funny that you say that because I have a cadre of men who do listen to the podcast. Yay, good. Dr. Brittany Barreto and Rachel Braun-Sherl, thank you so much, my friends, for coming on. This was uh, really great. Thank great you. Great to be with you. And great to see you, Brittany. Same here. Thank you for joining me as we discuss the challenges and opportunities in the field of innovation in women's health. I really hope this discussion opened your eyes to some of the challenges as well as the opportunities that women and women's health innovators face. In fact, if you're looking to make an impact, investing, starting a business in women's health, or working for one can provide many opportunities. And as you heard, while there are still challenges such as obtaining funding and barriers to marketing, one can really make a difference. And as consumers and advocates, we all need to be aware of the science behind health products in order to make better choices and to support credible companies. If you enjoyed the program, do rate us on your favorite platform and subscribe so you won't miss an episode. I also invite you to follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and go to our website at beyondthepapergown.com. There you'll find articles, podcasts, a marketplace, as well as information on nonprofits focused on women's health. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to our newsletter so you can keep up to date on our podcast, Women's Health News, and ways to participate in advocacy and studies. Thanks again for joining us and take good care. Our podcast was produced by Patrick Shambayati and me, and our associate producer is Kyla McMillian.